I'm Janet Nakano with MBA Podcaster. Remember your favorite teacher? Remember being excited to go to class? Well, that's exactly the kind of test prep experience Manhattan GMAT strives to provide. They believe that if you have an excellent teacher, you'll focus, absorb the material quickly, and get your best possible score. This time, we're going to check out Manhattan GMAT at their New York offices. We'll learn about the company, its teachers, and visit a class, hear from a current student and alumni. You'll also get Manhattan GMAT's top 10 tips on studying for and taking the exam. You've just accepted your fate. I have to take the GMAT, you admit to yourself. Manhattan GMAT's Chris Ryan. And now, you admit one more thing. No, I can't walk in and take it cold. So you're contemplating all the research you have to do. Tomorrow, you'll start trolling the online forums, talking to friends about their GMAT prep experiences, and even haunting the study aids aisle of your local Barnes & Noble. But right now, you don't want to buy anything exactly. You want general principles. Whichever books you pick up, whatever course you take, how should you think about preparing for the GMAT? Here are five tips to guide you. Tip number one. Go to the source. Many religions have holy books, right? Well, the official guides from the GMAC in their orange, purple, and green splendor are the holy books of the GMAT religion. Every other book, as good as it may be, is just commentary. Only the official guides contain problems retired from the real GMAT. Thus, your efforts must be centered on the official guides. The other quote-unquote holy source is GMAT Prep, the free practice test software that you should download from MBA.com. This software has its drawbacks, but it also has two unique benefits. It uses the real GMAT algorithm for one thing, and even more importantly, it contains retired GMAT problems, many of which aren't in the official guides. There are two tests offered on this software. You should consider saving at least one of them for later in your preparation to use as a measuring stick. Though the GMAC sources are the best, don't ignore third-party resources. Not surprisingly, I believe that the Manhattan GMAT resources are great. For instance, our computer adaptive exams supply crucial explanations and analytics that GMAT prep lacks. Our strategy guides break down the core principles and give you lots of relevant practice. Tip number two, build up, not down. We see it all the time. Whole herds of students go running off to find super hard problems. If I can crack these, the herds think, I can do any GMAT problem. Don't follow the herds. How you do on the GMAT is determined by your floor, the level of problem that you can absolutely positively get right every time without hesitation or anxiety. So you should spend more time truly mastering the easier problems. And by mastering, I mean ensuring that you can do the problem not only correctly, but also quickly, easily, and confidently under tough exam conditions, as if Dirty Harry himself were leveling his 44 Magnum at you and asking if you feel lucky. By mastering, I mean knowing everything there is to know about the problem, the underlying principles, the subtle application of those principles, the embedded tricks and traps. I mean knowing how to teach the problem, knowing how to write a similar problem. Once you have built this knowledge and skill, then progress upwards. It's like building a brick wall. Don't put the next layer on until the current layer is in place. Of course, for top scores, you'll need to practice against some really tough problems, but make sure all the lower levels are solid first. Tip number three, 
turn enemies into friends? Should you play to your strengths or attack your weaknesses? Well, ideally, you'll do both. But if you have to choose, especially early on, pick the weaknesses. Let's say you're a genius on critical reasoning, but you're terrible at sentence correction. Which should you work on? Well, the sentence correction. Why? Because the test is adaptive. If sentence correction is weighing your performance down, you'll never get the really hard critical reasoning problems. So face your demons. Eat your vegetables. Do you hate geometry? Then do those problems first. Consider them the enemy plans that have fallen into your hands and extract all the intelligence. Then, as you master individual enemy problems, turn them into your friends. Become totally comfortable with them. Then, when you walk into the GMAT, none of the questions will throw you completely off your game plan. Tip number four, mix it up. You know you should do a lot of topic-based work, especially in your weak areas. And you know you'll have to take practice tests to prepare for the GMAT's adaptive format, which is both less familiar and more stressful than a paper-based format. That's all well and good. But don't limit yourself to topic-based work and practice tests. Topic-based drills are indispensable, but they give you a crutch. You already know what kind of problem you're facing. In contrast, the GMAT throws you problems in random order by content area. So you need to develop your eye, your ability to recognize patterns, perceive key traits, classify problems, and bring relevant strategies to bear. In this regard, practice tests would seem to help you here, and they do. But you can't, or you shouldn't, take a practice test every day. You can burn yourself out all too easily. After every practice exam, you need time to study the detailed game film, to draw out lessons and to fix the issues. That's several days of work before you take another practice exam. So what should you do when you're not taking practice exams? Short drills of mixed topic problems from the official guides. The GMAC has already done the prep work for you. They've jumbled up the problems by topic but arranged them in order of difficulty. So do five to ten problems in a row. Don't skip any. And then spend double the time afterwards reviewing and mastering each problem. You can do this kind of drill every day, especially as you get closer to the real exam, and your GMAT muscles will grow strong. Tip number five, know what you know. It's two weeks to the exam. You've done a ton of work and your head is kind of swimming. Stop making your head swim. Start reviewing and redoing problems. At this point, it's much less important to cram new stuff into your brain than it is to organize and strengthen what's already in there. Don't worry about trying to cover everything under the sun. Instead, go for depth over breadth. Force yourself to revisit problems you think you know. You'll be surprised at what you don't really know. Master a few representative problems from each topic tested on the GMAT. Know everything about these problems. For each one, have a crystal clear approach plan, and also a plan B, C, and even D, that you can execute correctly, quickly, easily, and confidently, while taking enemy fire, so to speak. Now work those problems again until you've licked them. You want to walk into the exam with a bunch of friends, that is, official guide problems that you know cold, inside and out. Oh yeah, you should take one or two more practice exams in the last couple of weeks, but don't overdo it. With all these principles in hand, you'll be well-equipped to study for the GMAT in order to put your best foot forward on test day. 
But bear in mind that nothing will replace good old-fashioned elbow grease. Statistics from the GMAC show that the amount of time spent studying, both in terms of hours and weeks, correlates positively to performance on the test. 100 plus hours and 8 plus weeks are the best average results if you're curious. Let's call this tip number six. There aren't really any shortcuts to success on the GMAT. Stay tuned for Manhattan GMAT's top five GMAT test-taking strategies later on in the program. It was Zeke Vanderhoek who founded Manhattan GMAT. He was a former middle school teacher in Harlem for Teach for America. CEO Andrew Yang says Zeke based the company on one core principle. Zeke very much believed, we think very correctly, that the teacher is the primary component of any educational experience. That if you have an outstanding teacher, you'll have an outstanding experience. And if your teacher is not that good, um, then no matter what other pieces are in place, your experience probably won't be uh, outstanding. And that's really the main founding principle of Manhattan GMAT, that we try and find the best teachers and uh, pay them accordingly and even try and develop them further um, to be the best they can be. So to represent that we're uh, interested in in hiring the best teachers, uh, we pay a $1,000 signing bonus for all new instructors, plus $100 an hour to start, plus annual bonuses. Uh, We think that this compensation package is easily the highest in the industry, which represents how serious we are about finding the best teachers. Um, We're so serious that we'll even pay anyone who refers to us, someone who becomes an instructor, $1,000 as well. Um, So if you know any smart people out there and you think they might want to teach the GMAT, um, you can feel free to send them our way and we'll pay you $1,000 just for sending them to us. Um, Though you should be warned that in order to become an instructor with us, uh, the individual would need to have a 99th percentile score and past teaching experience, and even then, the chance of them getting uh, an offer is about one in five historically. The whole company is really energetic and young and collaborative. Uh, It's awesome. That's Carol Chang, one of Manhattan GMAT's instructors. (laughs) I'm not saying that because they told me to say it. It really is. Carol says what she enjoys most about teaching is creating classroom spirit. Like, we're all working together against this mean test (laughs) because it's just out to get us. And so all we have to do is work together and strategize and see the different tricks. And when you do that, you really build this collegial spirit in the classroom and then People don't treat it like this big bore because that's what this test can be. It can be stifling and boring and overwhelming. um, And it's really intimidating because you can be great at math. And then all of a sudden you pop out your first test with a dismal percentile and you can get really discouraged. But all you have to do is teach people and have them work together and see how you could just see around the GMAT's tricks and traps. And when you do that all together in the classroom, it's really fun. And that's definitely my favorite part about teaching. For business school. So many of you are going to be shooting for fall of 09, I know. But um, that would be interesting. It's Sunday evening, and Carol is teaching the first class of a nine-week course. Let's stay for a while and check it out. Except for me. My name is Carol. Carol Chang, that's my name. That's my email. Um, I went to Harvard. I studied sociology. Loved it. After I graduated, I moved to the Chinese side of the Chinese-North Korean border. I am Korean, and there's a lot of a big uh, Korean ethnic minority population there. So I was teaching and working over there is really interesting. And then uh, about just over a year ago, I came back here to New York. First thing that we should go over is the GMAT test itself. So some of you have taken it, but the majority of people in here have never seen this test before. So how is it structured? There's three sections. 
But really, there's only two sections that you need to focus your energy on. It begins with two essays in 60 minutes. We'll talk about these essays briefly in session six, but basically all you have to worry about is get through the essays, do a decent job, and just save all your energy for the real test, which is the quant and the verbal. So we have the quant and the verbal section. Each one is 75 minutes. Now, there's 37 questions in the quant section for 75 minutes. So about how much time is that per question? It's just about two minutes. Because right, if it was two minutes, it would be 74 minutes, and you have a minute to spare for like the clicking, next confirm, and all that stuff. So that's what we're going to be doing in class. Whenever we pull up a math problem, I have this handy-dandy stopwatch here, and I'm going to be timing you. And I'm going to cut you off at two minutes, and then ask you to hold up your answers. Okay. All of those 37 questions, about 15 of them are what we call data sufficiency, and 22 of them about are problem solving. So problem solving is your straight up multiple choice, A, B, C, D, E, right? Pick the answer. Data sufficiency, for those of you who've taken the test before, is the bane of everybody's existence. Because data sufficiency asks you not to solve the problem, but to just say if you have enough information so that you could solve it. And that's really, really tricky. And there's all these nasty tricks and traps and language things that they throw in front of you. And so it's not really an issue of, you know, do you know the math? It's more, do you know what they're trying to ask you? Right, then you have the verbal section, and that's 75 minutes, but it has 41 questions instead of 37. So how much time is that per question? Less than two. That's a good answer. Right? It's about like a minute 40-ish if you were to divide it evenly, but we're not going to divide it evenly because these questions are not created equal. You have sentence correction, which is basically like a lot of grammar stuff you have to know. Then you have critical reasoning, which is like you get a paragraph, it's talking about an argument, and then you have to answer a question about that argument. Then you have reading comp, very straight up, have a passage, answer questions about that passage. Okay? Sentence correction is mostly about grammar. Because it's mostly about grammar, which has rules, we're going to whip you into army soldiers and you're going to execute these in under 60 seconds. Right? So the time for those ones is just one minute. And then for critical reasoning, we'll give you two minutes. And then timing for reading comp ends up being about two minutes. So we have a timing mechanism online, but really what I recommend is you just get a physical stopwatch. So you don't have to be online to do it. Any of you guys have um, the iPhone? The iPhone has a beautiful stopwatch on it. <laughs> the key is that you have something that has a lap button over here, right? So the way that you use this, you can get it at like Models or Paragon Sports. You just press start, right? And let's say you're doing five problems in a set, right? So you click start. And then let's say the problem's like, what is three plus two? And you're like, five, E. Right, then you pick your answer. Don't click stop, click lap, because you're done with the first problem. And then you're like, suppose problem number two, what is three plus one? Four, great. And then you finish the second lap, you finish the third problem, finish the fourth problem. And then at the end of the set, you click stop. And then you click recall, and then you can see how long each lap or each problem took you. Okay? And timing is absolutely everything on this test. If you want to learn the content, then you have to know how to manage your time. If you guys do that, you'll be golden on this test. And you cannot do these problems untimed. Right? One of the biggest mistakes that people make when they're preparing for this test is to do things untimed. Right? It's like learning physics in a frictionless world. It doesn't matter. There's friction. It doesn't matter because the test is timed. You need to use this. Many of you are wondering when you're going to be ready to take the test. So this is the ideal timeline. If you put in 10 to 15 hours of homework a week, which is not that bad, it's two to three hours a day of studying for just five days a week. 
Then, after class is done, after these nine weeks, count on two weeks of additional study, and then take your first exam. Right? About a month later, count on taking your second exam. An alternate timeline is this. You know, if you can only put in about half the homework, like four hours, count on three months of additional study. If you can only do like eight hours, one month of additional study. Then, schedule your first exam. A month later, schedule your second exam. Or count on taking your second one. This is where I get a lot of scowls in class. Everybody's like, why? Why do you want to take it twice? Don't you just want to take it once and do well? Why would we ever recommend to take it twice? Really counterintuitive. And I was like this too. I was like, I don't understand why. I mean, in life, don't you just want to prepare for something and prepare well and then take something and then do well? But a lot of people get nervous, you know, before the test. And you go in, you're like anxious, and you can't, you know, you have butterflies, and then something goes wrong, and you know, you just don't want to put like all your eggs in that one basket. And for a lot of people, if they're so anxious before they go in, then if you really just view this first test as your practice, this is just your first go, then a lot of times it eases anxiety and nerves about that first test. And then you can count on taking it a second time. After an intense three hours, class ends, but not without knowing that the next nine weeks will be challenging. But student Matt Ronan says, so far, so good. Um, I, I thought the teacher was very dynamic, very uh, engaging, which made it worthwhile to be here, as opposed to taking it online, which is also an option. So uh, it makes me glad that I, that I took it um, for, for more money, but in person with the teacher. Danielle DeChaccio is Manhattan GMAT's manager of marketing and student services. She says the nine-week live course is the most popular. Um, the locations where we have the in-person classes are New York, Boston, Chicago, uh, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, and some locations out on the West Coast in the San Francisco Bay Area and also a number of spots in the Los Angeles region. Um, and we'll also be in the Raleigh-Durham area and a couple other locations pretty soon as well. And the cost for the classes typically ranges between about $13.90 and $14.40 depending on the location. Um, we also have the nine-week class offered in a virtual format. Before we get started here, please know that participation is really an essential part of this online class. We can't see each other, obviously, but we can hear each other. And uh, our feedback from students tell us that the class is definitely enriched when we have more perspectives than just the two instructors. So please feel free to ask questions over the microphone whenever you see fit, to ask questions through the direct messaging window whenever you think it's appropriate, give comments, give your own uh, thoughts. So that's great for students who either aren't located near one of our centers or are international students or students who maybe could get to a center but prefer not to because of the convenience factor. Um, and those classes meet once a week for three-hour sessions for nine weeks. Um, we also have some self-study programs, which basically provide students with all of the materials, all of the resources that they'd get in a nine-week course, but it allows them to go through the material and the resources at their own pace. So if they want to go a little bit more quickly or a little bit more slowly, then they don't have maybe as big a need to have in-person instruction. Um, and those packages are between $5.90 and $7.90. We also have a boot camp program that we hold a few times a year in New York City, um, which is $29.50 is the cost for that program. And that basically condenses the nine-week 
material into a very intensive two-week program that meets pretty much every day for two weeks. And we also offer private tutoring, and that's available in person in all of our locations and also virtually. And that ranges somewhere between 215 to 245 an hour. And we also have workshops, which are one-day programs. They're held virtually for the most part. Our workshops typically are either on the fundamentals side or advanced workshops. So we have a couple foundations of math workshops that we do for people who are looking for just a review pretty much of the basics on the quantitative side. And then we also have some advanced workshops on both the quantitative and the verbal side. Dean Kelly is a Manhattan GMAT alumnus. He lives in Canada, so he says he decided to take the virtual course. It took some getting used to, I must say. It's it's something that, you know, I'm sure many people find strange in that you're sitting in front of your computer and literally having a, a live class. But after some time, I got used to it and it was like second nature. Dean says he took courses with other test prep providers, but didn't get the results he was hoping for. The GMAT is something that can trick your mind. And me having taken that test for three times over, I you know, came under the, the realization that it can intimidate you. And if you're not properly prepared, you can easily get screwed over. But what Manhattan GMAT prep does, it fine-tunes the procedure for you to actually conquer every aspect and I'm not just saying this by, you know, trying to blow things out of proportion. I'm saying this because it actually worked for me. Like, for example, the, the general daily routines that I'm supposed to be following that they have on the online schedule, that, you know, in the way they have it structured, made me become more disciplined. And with the discipline came practice, and with the practice came a better understanding. And with that, um, that's one of the reasons why I'm so very successful. Jeep Rochai Shanine Torn decided to take Manhattan GMAT's self-study program, which she says helped her get the score she wanted. I took the first taste, I got 650. And after I took a course with Manhattan GMAT, I got 700. You know, my weakness is English because I I didn't grow up in, in the U.S. And I think that Manhattan GMAT really did a great job when I have very particular need. When I watch the classes, the recording video, I know that um, the class really emphasizes in math because that's where American students um, really want to focus on. So that's why um, I did a couple of hours of personal tutor, and I had a really good teacher. So he quickly drove to the direction that I want, which is critical reading, targeting my, my main weaknesses. Manhattan GMAT provides scholarships through organizations like MBA Diversity and Beat the GMAT. And recently, the company created a new program called Social Venture Scholars. Again, Danielle DeCaccio. Through this program, we provide full tuition scholarships for students who work in the nonprofit world and essentially people who are working towards positive social change and because of that, because of the kind of work they do, they often aren't paid very handsomely for their work and can't really afford to put in so much money towards their preparation for school. Currently, we hold the courses in New York. We're hoping to soon expand that to virtual courses as well, so students in all different locations can participate. And the recipients of the scholarship have free tuition to one of our nine-week programs 
in our New York Center and receive the tuition for the class and all of the materials free of cost. So it's designed for students who demonstrate a financial need and are working towards positive social change and want to use an MBA to further the work that they're doing towards positive social change. Manhattan GMAT also organizes MBA admissions panel discussions to help you navigate through the application process. CEO Andrew Yang. One of the benefits of our not offering admissions uh, consulting services is that uh, admissions officers from the top business schools uh, are eager to work with us. Um, they look askance a little bit at admissions consulting services, but GMAT prep is, uh, is very much expected. So here in New York, we had an admissions uh, panel with admissions officers from Harvard, Wharton, Columbia, and NYU uh, last fall. We also had a panel in Chicago with Kellogg and the University of Chicago where students could interact with admissions officers and get information directly from them. We think that this is a benefit that uh, we can only offer in part because we're something of the service provider to students who are shooting for these top schools. We're also the service provider to Goldman Sachs, McKinsey, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan, uh, Bank of America, and other schools that employ people that are shooting for top 10, 10 programs, which is one reason why admissions officers from these schools are happy to work with us because uh, they can reach uh, applicants that they're interested in through us. Now, when it's finally time for you to take the GMAT, you'll want to go in with these five tips in mind. Again, Manhattan GMAT's Chris Ryan. You've studied all the content. You've done hundreds of problems. You've taken practice test after practice test. And now it's GMAT game day. You're following all the logistics tips. You got enough sleep last night. You've shown up early. You haven't eaten anything funny. And you plan to take the breaks while giving yourself enough time to check back in with the proctors. But what about actually taking the test? What do you have to remember while you're in the thick of battle? Tip number one, turn the page. Imagine you've just clicked C, next, confirm, on a tough data sufficiency problem involving two overlapping triangles and lots of labeled angles. One of the statements was utterly baffling. You spent too much time deciding between C and E, and now you think you probably chose wrong with your luck. Forget all that. You are now facing a new problem. This is the only place your mind should be. Take out a blank sheet of mental paper and dive in. Now, as you get into this new problem, a whisper in your head tells you that the problem is too easy, so you probably did get the last problem wrong. And by the way, you're doing poorly overall. Turn that whisper off. You should not spend an instant of your time wondering about the past or about how you're doing. You truly have no idea how you're doing. And if you did know, it wouldn't help you anyway. The only opportunity you have to affect your fate is this problem. Forget about one minute ago. Focus on the here and now and do the problem as best you can. Tip number two, know when to fold them. You are now embroiled in a different problem and it's a dogfight. This problem seduced you. You thought you knew how to solve it, but the answer you got wasn't on the screen. Now you're scrambling to recheck all your math and you can't find any errors. You're frustrated and you feel like simply choosing the answer choice that's in the same ballpark as the answer that you calculated. Now take a deep breath. And remember that to win this war, you have to lose some battles. Don't be a perfectionist. Remember that even people who get very high scores on the GMAT get a substantial proportion of questions wrong. Be ready to cut bait and walk away. 
But, you think to yourself angrily, I've spent all this time and now it'll all be wasted. Well, maybe not. Step back and see if you can take an intelligent guess. Eliminate some answers if you can. Sometimes, actually, by giving up on plan A, you can spot plan B, which may not get you all the way to the right answer, but it might increase the odds. So now you give this plan B idea a try, and it doesn't work this time. You don't see any other way to attack this evil problem. What do you do now? Here's what you do. Tell yourself the problem is experimental, and that's why it's so cryptic. As many as a quarter of the questions are in fact experimental and will not count toward your score. Of course, you shouldn't try to guess which ones, but if you find yourself at approximately the two-minute mark with no way forward on a particularly dastardly problem, tell yourself that the problem doesn't even count, then take your shot and move on. Save your time to invest in problems you really know how to do. Tip number three, do your work on the scratch paper, not in your head. Now you get a problem involving odds and evens. The problem looks pretty straightforward, so you start thinking, okay, let's see, x odd plus y even is odd, and then I multiply that odd by this other odd, and I get odd. Or I could have x be even, so then even plus even is even, and I multiply it even by odd, and I get, stop. You are setting yourself up for a fall. Your working memory can only hold a few items at a time under the best conditions. And studies have shown that under test pressure, the powers of your working memory shrink even further. Remember that other odds and evens problem you did in your head while you were sitting at your kitchen table with a plate of cookies? That problem won't be so easy right now here in the exam center. Write out your steps. Put the scenarios down on the scratch paper. Make the process as easy on your brain as possible. And be organized. Be a friend to your future self. The self you're going to be in 30 seconds when you're looking back over all these scribbles and trying to figure out what you just wrote down. Tip number four. Check the time periodically, but don't be clock paranoid. Now you're into another problem, and you're worried you're spending too much time. Your eyes dart to the clock every half a minute. You can just feel the seconds dropping away like grains of sand through the neck of an hourglass. There go a few more, and a few more. Stop. Focus on the problem you're doing. By checking the clock so often, you're taking your mind off of solving the problem itself. Moreover, you're liable to think you're taking more time than you actually are. As a result, you may put in too little effort and bail out too quickly. Manage time by keeping to a rhythm, a kind of internal drumbeat. Then, every so often, check the clock and figure out if you're ahead, behind, or right on pace. You can use benchmarks such as, where should you be every 15 minutes? Or you can simply compare the time left to the number of problems remaining. You should have two minutes per math problem and approximately one minute and 50 seconds per verbal problem overall. More for critical reasoning and reading comp, less for sentence correction. But don't compute the verbal side precisely. Simply figure out two minutes per problem then take off about 10%. If you're behind, adjust your drumbeat accordingly. You'll need to shave seconds here and there. Don't try to make it all up in one fell swoop. Tip number five, take a moment to smile. You've got 10 minutes left and seven math problems to do. Panic has set in. You're about to start randomly guessing even though you know how to do this problem in front of you. And you can't help thinking that the whole exam has gone horribly wrong. 
Okay, this last prescription will seem extremely difficult at first. Apply the muscles of your face to your tightly pursed lips, causing the corners to arch ever so slightly upwards as you breathe in deeply through your nose. Now let the breath back out. Keep smiling for a moment, even if it's forced. Emotion actually affects cognition for good or ill. If you panic, you can't think. And a direct way to change your emotional state is simply to fasten a brief smile on your face. Now get back into the fight, but stay positive. It's the best way to ensure that your performance measures up to your abilities. The GMAT is like a tennis match at Wimbledon. And just like a tennis pro, you should recognize that the game is not truly physical, it's mental. Control your mind on the court and your body will take care of itself. In a similar way, if you control your mind during the exam using the strategies described above, your hard-earned GMAT skills will show up and take care of business. Good luck. For more information on Manhattan GMAT, visit ManhattanGMAT.com. I'm Janet Nakano for MBA Podcaster. Thanks for listening.